Good morning, Pillar Church. My name is Kanan Parker. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. And as always, it's a joy to be able to open God's word with you and walk through the text of scripture. Our vision here at Pillar Church is to lead you closer to Jesus and each other. And I pray that by the end of this message, you are compelled to be closer to Jesus and closer to each other. Uh, in the context of today's day and age, uh, there's a call that I want to put out to us, and it's a call to endure. It's the reality that we need spirit-empowered endurance. And so this morning, we're going to look at a passage of scripture, and hopefully it will lead us and inspire us uh, to be spirit-filled and to endure in the power that God supplies. So go ahead and open in your copy of God's Word, Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. We're going to consider verse 19 through 27, 28. The Bible tells us not to grow weary in well-doing, but if we continue in our well-doing in the proper time, we'll reap the harvest if we don't give up. That's Galatians 6, 9. However, in this call to endure, there's a few things that I think we should understand about the call to spirit-empowered endurance. The first is, what sparks our need to endure? That's a great question. What is the thing that causes us and causes the need to endure. The second thing is, what is the source of our ability to endure? What is the source? What's the power behind our ability to endure? The third thing is, I want to highlight via the text, what is a distinguishing mark of endurance? I want to highlight what is a distinguishing mark of endurance. And lastly, I want to highlight what's the motivation behind our endurance. Why do we endure? For what means, to what end do we endure? That's what I want to look at this morning. Now, before we get to Acts chapter uh, 14, and before we consider our, our verses 19 through 27, 28, I wanted to give you the, the context of where we find ourselves because you can't just jump in, into the middle of a book and think you're going to understand it properly, nor in context. And so Acts chapter 13 and 14, we have the Apostle Paul being commissioned by the church in Antioch. Not the church of Antioch near Galatia, but the church of Antioch near Syria, right? And so he's being commissioned by the church to go to foreign lands and preach the gospel to a people who have never heard it. The church lay hands upon Paul and Barnabas. It says that the Holy Spirit set apart Paul and Barnabas for this work. And he says that he took them and, and, and the men of God laid their hands upon Paul and they commissioned him out to do the work of proclaiming the gospel to foreign lands. And so Paul and Barnabas go. They go and they proclaim the gospel in foreign lands. And Paul and Barnabas end up in a place called Iconium and they start preaching the gospel there. And what happens? People are coming to faith. People are believing in and on the name of Jesus Christ for salvation from sin, for restoration and wholeness, for peace and shalom. They're believing that Jesus' is, Jesus is life, death, and resurrection is the substance they need. It is the reality that they can cling to. They start believing that truth. But the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish religious leaders of the day, they don't like that. They don't like that this new kid comes on the block named Jesus and he shakes up everything. And now there's this former Jewish leader named Paul, who was a Pharisee, who was now leading and proclaiming the gospel message of that man who came and shook it up named Jesus. He is his ambassador. He is his representative. 
And the Jewish leaders don't like that. They consider Jesus and his followers to be a threat. And there are three main ways that Jesus and his followers were a threat to the Jewish religious leaders of the day. One is that there was a threat to their pocketbooks. It was a threat to them financially. You say, how were they a threat financially? Well, they were a threat financially, uh, namely because oftentimes when people would travel from foreign lands, and this was especially true for those who were in the low economic class, they would travel from foreign lands to come to the temple to sacrifice unto Yahweh, to come and to worship Yahweh. And so uh, they would travel all these long distances to get to the temple. However, in traveling all those long distances to get to the temple, it was hard for groups of people to bring, up, to bring along bulls and goats and doves and sheep to sacrifice unto God. And so, like good people, they had that stuff ready. They had it ready to, to share. They had it ready to sell uh, in and around the, the premises of the temple. So if you traveled 100 miles to sacrifice to God, you could get there and purchase a lamb or, or, or a dove to sacrifice unto God. Now, it's not that the selling of the, the lamb or the dove was evil in and of itself. It's the fact that those people who were selling the lambs and the doves and the sheep and the goats and all those sacrificial animals, they would exploit the people by inflating the price. They would inflate the price of these animals so that those who traveled many distances would have to buy at double, triple, or whatever the rate in which they normally would buy, knowing that they were incapable of bringing a sacrifice themselves. And so they were extorting the people. And, and Jesus would have none of that. Jesus would have none of that. In fact, you see at times earlier in the Gospels, you see Jesus flipping tables saying, you're turning my father's house, a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. Stop selling this nonsense in and around now. They shouldn't probably shouldn't be selling it in the temple anyway. But either way, they were extorting people by inflating the price and making sure that they were making bank. But here comes Paul. And Paul starts preaching this gospel that says that Jesus is the final and perfect sacrifice. And if Jesus is the perfect and final sacrifice, there's no need to buy an animal so that you could worship God and sacrifice unto him. God, worship unto God. God wants worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth, right? And so... Uh, you got these religious leaders who are selling these things and they're seeing a decrease in their sales. They don't like that. Jesus is a threat to their finances, but he's not just a threat to their finances. Jesus is a threat to their authority. Jesus is a threat to their authority. Remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're the religious elite of the day. They're the ones that you go to for any religious goods, need, goods and services. They're the ones that, that they went to in order to lead them, to inspire hope in them, in order to move, to, to move movements. They would go to the religious leaders of the day. And here comes Paul, who's lifting up the name of Jesus, who called those religious leaders hypocrites in Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, read Matthew 23, it's an indictment for sure. But Jesus says that these religious leaders, they don't even do what they tell you to do. They're hypocrites. And I know many of you and many of us who live here in East Fort Worth, many in my generation, the millennial generation in particular, there's one thing that we don't like. No, there's many things we don't like. But there's one thing that we don't like. We don't like hypocrisy. We don't want to follow a fake. We don't want to follow a sham. Millennials in general love authenticity. 
We want what's real. And that's not to say that other generations don't. It's just that studies show that if something is inauthentic to a millennial, you can basically kiss it goodbye. Authenticity is everything. And in the same way, uh, these people were losing credibility in the sight of their followers because they would see what Jesus was hoping to illuminate their eyes to. The idea that they are hypocrites, they tie up heavy loads, the text says, upon their people that not even they themselves can carry. And so he was a threat to their finances. He was a threat to their authority. He said he would call people to not follow those religious leaders. Paul would call them to follow Jesus instead, which leads to the third issue. He was a threat to their security. The Jewish leaders lived in a, well, the Jews lived under the, in the region under the jurisdiction of the Roman government. And they had a little deal worked out. You go ahead and live as Jews. You do as Jews do. As long as you don't stir up trouble, you don't cause no, no problems. And when we come around your town to pinch that salt to Caesar, to Caesar you all pinch that salt to Caesar. Because after all, Caesar is Lord. And so the Jews, okay, we'll, we'll do such things. You leave us alone, we do a little pinch of the salt, we good. But here comes this Jesus, and here comes this Paul, who's proclaiming this Jesus. And he's saying that we have loyalty to no man. We have loyalty to no governor. We have loyalty first and foremost to Jesus. There is only one Lord. There is only one God. And his name is Jesus, and we will worship him and only him. We are not pinching salt to this. We are not pinching salt to Caesar and saying as an act of worship and saying Caesar is Lord. We're not doing that. We worship King Jesus. Now, the Jews don't like that because what that's going to do is that's going to cause a problem with the little setup they got with the Romans. You messing everything up, Paul. You proclaiming this Jesus, talking about we serve one God and one Lord. That's messing everything up. We don't like that. We don't like that at all. He's a threat to their pocketbook. He's a threat to their authority. He's a threat to their security. Because after all, Rome will come up in there and tear the whole thing down. Rome's a government. Governments don't take well to uprisings of people. In fact, during this day and in this time, if an uprising occurred, the people would be mashed out. You'd never even hear about it in history. Sometimes we hear of such things, but oftentimes we don't even hear of such mashings in history. Why? Because history is written by those who survive. And if you didn't survive to tell your piece of the story, my friend, your piece of the story didn't happen. Don't go messing this up, Paul, talking about this Jesus is Lord nonsense. We're trying to survive out here. You're a threat to our security. Jewish rulers being filled with jealousy, being filled with the conflicts of interest. Acts 13.45 says that they were, they were filled with jealousy. And then Acts 14.5 says that they attempted to kill Paul. Attempted to kill Paul. Acts 14.5. That means that they tried to do it before. Paul and Barnabas, uh, after hearing that the Jews were going to stone them in Iconium, left. And they went to a town called Lystra. And as they get to Lystra, they start preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when they get there, Paul's eyes lock on to a man who was lame, 
probably lame from birth. I actually don't know. But the man was lame and he locks eyes. And Paul brings about the healing of this person in the name of Jesus. And he stands up. He performs a miracle in the sight of the people. And the people of, of Lystra see this. And they're going, oh my goodness. Did you just see the miracle that took place? This must be Zeus and Hermes. This must be our gods. This is a Gentile region. And in the history of, of these people, there's, a, there's stories that Zeus and Hermes came to visit the land. And the people did not welcome them properly. And so they obliterated everybody in the land. And so this time, when they see a miracle happen, that a miracle that, you know, it's the nature of a miracle. It's amazing, right? They see something amazing take place. And they go, oh, my goodness, that must be Zeus and Hermes. Yo, they back. They made the phone call down the street to the temple. And they were like, bro, Zeus and Hermes is back. Bring all the cattle. Bring all the cows. We're fitting to get a right sacrifice today, right? And so they come and they get ready to worship Paul and Barnabas as if Paul and Barnabas is Zeus and Hermes. Paul and Barnabas have to fight this back. No. No, I'm not Zeus. I'm not Hermes. We're just men like you. Don't worship us. And the people are fiercely desiring to worship Paul and Barnabas because they've seen this miracle take place. And Paul and Barnabas, no doubt, all they want to do is communicate the glorious gospel of Jesus to these people. That's what they want to do. They want to communicate the glorious gospel of Jesus. In fact, they barely stop them from worshiping them. Thus, we get to our text in Acts chapter 14, verse 19. The question I posed at the beginning was, what sparks our need to endure? Spirit-empowered endurance is sparked, firstly, by suffering. Look at verse 19. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And when they won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking, he was dead. Let's just stop there. Verse 19 is loaded. Verse 19 is loaded. Let's look at what verse 19 says. It says Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Hearing that it's not a big deal. Bro, that's a hundred mile track. Track. According to Google Maps, that's a one day journey. That's like dudes walking from here to Waco. It's not just that they walked from here to Waco. It's not just that they traveled 100 miles. They traveled 100 miles to fulfill what they couldn't fulfill in Acts chapter 14, verse 5. When they said they attempted to kill him, but Paul and Barnabas and the boys left. Now they said, we found him. Let's travel 100 miles to kill him. What kind of sick evil do you have to be to travel 100 miles to murder a man, to stop him from proclaiming the gospel of Christ? That is sin in the heart of a person that wants to squelch the good news because they have something else of greater interest in mind. Their own safety. Money. Their authority, perhaps. Forget God and his glory. This gospel is messing stuff up. Oh, he's in Iconium? Oh he, oh, he went to Lystra? Let's go over there and get him, boys. And they travel 100 miles, 100 miles on foot. They didn't have Toyota Camrys back then. They couldn't just hop on a train or a bus and get, to get 100 miles down the road. They're on horseback. They're walking 100 miles, one day's journey to find Paul, to murder him. 
But not only did they travel that far, look at verse 19. It says, some came from Antioch and Iconium, and they won over the crowds. That's the second thing you want to see here. They won over the crowds. Remember the context. The people then called up the temple, and they brought the animals to sacrifice to Zeus and Hermes. The people are ready to worship Paul and Barnabas. Their, their ears are open to Paul and Barnabas. They're ready. They're joyful. How on earth could the Jews have persuaded the crowds to go from joyful, wanting to worship them, to stoning them? The Jews were masters at the art of persuasion. They were so gifted at the art of changing an individual's mind, and they had several different tactics and techniques to cause people to change their minds. One way they did is they used intimidation and threats. You see that in Acts chapter 4. They use intimidation and threats. They would have you arrested, brought before men who sit in high chairs. And they would sit down and, 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 and question you and tell you to stop doing whatever it is you're doing. And in this case, in Acts, 5, in Acts 4, they were being told to stop proclaiming this name, Jesus. Cut it out. The authorities would get them. They would use threats and intimidation. Because, you know, they... It's not like this is the first time they've threatened somebody's life, right? It, it, you get the sense as you read the book of Acts that they're used to threatening people, that they're used to, that they, that they have taken people's lives before. You just get that sense. Like, this ain't the first time they've done this. This ain't their first rodeo. So they would do intimidation and threats. Another way they would do it is they would bear false witness. I don't know exactly how they would do this, but you see it in Acts chapter 5. It says that they were bearing false witness. And, and, and we get the, the sense almost like they were willing to pay somebody off to lie. And they would come out the woodwork like, yeah, I saw them do whatever it was they were accusing them of doing. And Acts chapter 9 tells you, I mean, they would straight just assassinate you. Why does that matter? Because that means that their threats weren't empty, bro. Their threats weren't empty, bro. If they threatened you, there's a chance that they could actually kill you. And, and, and as I said, it doesn't seem like it was something new. If you read history, you'll find and you'll learn of a, of a grouping of people within the Jewish, the Jewish sect called Sakairi. And, and that's translated as the dagger men. And, and, and they were, according to some records, they were the assassins of the group. And they would go ahead and take out certain governmental leaders and such. Anybody that, that needed to be handled, the Sakairi would come and knife them up. I don't think they did any of those tactics here, though. When they traveled 100 miles, they're not on home turf no more, right? They're not on home turf. I think what they did is they played on the people's embarrassment. They played on their embarrassment and pride. You ever heard the, the, the saying, people are smart, but crowds are dumb? I think, they, I think they have. I think they came. They may have bared a little bit of false witness, but the, I think they probably just played on the people's embarrassment for thinking that it was Hermes and Zeus, and they and here come the Jews like, no, that ain't Hermes and Zeus. In fact, they came to our hood and did the exact same thing. They came to our hood and, and did some kind of a, a, a fallacious miracle that caused us to think he was somebody that he's not. These are charlatans, and we got to get rid of them. And the people are like, yeah, you know what I mean? They did make us come and think that there was somebody that they not. They are charlatans. They do need to get dealt with. Which leads you to the third thing that happened in verse 19. They stoned Paul. 
They stoned Paul. Now, if you've ever read Acts chapter 14 and you get through verse 19, it's only a few words that say they stoned Paul, but I need you to understand what goes into stoning. Stoning isn't like they take pebbles and hurl them at your chest, okay? Oftentimes, when it's a, when it, in, this, in this era and in this day, in this context, the way they would stone you is that they would push you off of some form of a ledge, be it five feet to 15 feet deep. And I took about an hour and a half researching stonings in different cultures just to learn what this might look like. And I saw some horrific things. And I did this research a couple years ago, too. And I found similar, I mean, it's just horrible things. And they would take a stone. Stones anywhere from the size of a softball to the size of a watermelon, averaging the size of your head. And they will push you off this short ledge, this, this, this mini micro cliff, and they wouldn't throw stones at you like a baseball. Oh no, gravity would have its way, way too much. No, we need a leverage gravity. They would take these things and they would hurl them downward upon you. And as they're hurling stones downward upon you, remember, stoning isn't, isn't, isn't neat. It's not like, you know, a, a bullet to the back of the head where you're gone. No, oftentimes these individuals, they're not like professional baseball players or professional football players. They don't have all this um, coordination to hit you right in the head. Oh, no, oftentimes it would just crush your foot. Sometimes it would just hit you in the femur and crack it. Sometimes it would hit you in the back of the neck. Just enough to paralyze you from your spinal, from your neck down, hitting you in the spinal cord, but not enough to null the pain. So you can't even move, you can't even groan, but the stones are hitting you. You're feeling all the pain, but you can't move. Sometimes you get the, the head hit that would kill you, but I don't think that was often. And I don't think it was the first shot. The idea of stoning is to inflict maximum damage on you. I want to hurt you. That's why you stone somebody. You, you stone somebody because you want to hurt them. You want maximum damage. You want an example. You want to pile up a, 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 a heap of rocks over that individual's body. So you got something to point to. Anybody, anytime anybody gets out of line, all you got to do is point at the heap. Remember, Paul? Act right. They stoned him, y'all. Don't read over that lightly. Paul took stones because he was not willing to compromise in his gospel witness and testimony. That's, that's something, y'all. Paul believed the gospel. Paul believed in Jesus. Oh, Lord, would you increase my faith? Increase my faith that at the, the, the sight of stones being hurled at my head, I would stand firm. I would endure, please, Lord. I pray you, Pillar Church, that no matter what the societal pressure put on you is, no matter what the, the, the physical threat may be to your life, that your love for Jesus would hold you firm and that you would endure for his name's sake, not for yours. That at the end of the day, centuries later, it wouldn't be that so-and-so died it wouldn't be solely that so-and-so died because they believed in the gospel. No, it would be, yo, the name of Jesus causes men. Like, they would remember him more than the person who perished. And that the, the knowledge of who Jesus is would change that individual's life because he matters. He matters for you. He matters for me. What sparks our need to endure? Spirit-empowered endurance is sparked by suffering. Secondly, what's the source of our ability to endure? 
What is the source of our ability to endure? The source of our spirit-empowered endurance is God's power in you, not your own. The source of spirit-empowered endurance is God's power in you. It is not your own. Look at verse 19 again. And this time we'll go a little bit into verse 20. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And when they went over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. Verse 20. After the disciples gathered around him, he got up. Y'all, did y'all just see that? After the disciples gathered around him, he got up. Within just a few words, my friends, I think we just witnessed a miracle. I think we just read of something amazing that's, that's just taken place. They stoned Paul. Dudes don't get up from stoning. Dudes die from stoning. And yet when the disciples gathered around Paul, which means that they were satisfied in the level by which they stoned him because the crowds were dissipated enough for the disciples to swoop in and snatch him up. They fully stoned Paul. They fully stoned him. And the disciples gathered around him and he got up. Some people say Paul died. Some people say Paul didn't die. I don't care what you say. This is miraculous. This is miraculous for a man to stand up after he's been stoned. It's incredible. One miracle to another. But he didn't stand up under his own power nor his own authority. He stood up through the power that God supplied him. God is the one who saw Paul through these troubling times. God is the one who gets Paul through the impossible. It's God who gives us strength to endure. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says this. Do not fear for I am with you. Do not be afraid for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. But I don't know if you heard that. Let me read it again. Follow it with me slowly. Do not fear. You hear that pillar church? Do not fear. Why? This is what God says. For I am with you. God's with us. Do not be afraid. He says it again. Second time. Why? For I am your God. Then God says this, I will strengthen you. It is not your strength. Your strength doesn't accomplish what God's strength can. He says, I will strengthen you. Then he says, I will help you because we need it. But look at this last sentence. Wow. This last part of this sentence. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Hand. I will not let you go. God says, I got you, my people. I'm holding you, my people. I will strengthen you, my people. Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful passage. If you are God's people, God got you. God got you. Paul had literal rocks thrown at his head, and yet God held Paul up. God, with his righteous, powerful right hand, held Paul up. It's beautiful. 
we all suffer in this world in various ways. We all suffer in various ways. And sometimes it's a result of the fall. Other times it's just spiritual attack. We all suffer in various ways. And in, 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 in a way, our suffering can feel like rocks that are being hurled at our head. Rocks that are meant to kill us. Lies that we believe like a rock to your skull. Circumstances of life that it feels like it's just one blow after another. Relationship problems between you and somebody that you used to be close with. Somebody who you thought was down for you but they betrayed you. Or someone you thought you loved but they didn't love you the way you loved them. Relationship beef. And that goes broader too. Let's talk about cultural relational beef, right? There's problems, right? There's this stuff that needs to be reconciled here. It's like rocks, societal issues, like rocks being hurled at your head. What kind of rocks have been hurled at your head, Pella Church? What kind of rocks have been hurled at your head? Rocks aimed at killing you. Have you believed rocks in the forms of lies that says that you are not wanted? That you're used goods, that you're worthless? Oftentimes, that kind of rock is thrown at us at a young age, and it, we live debilitated because of its blunt force trauma. At a young age, somebody tells you that you're worthless. At a young age, somebody tells you that you're not wanted. And then throughout the rest of your life, you believe that, tr you believe that lie, that nobody wants you, that you are worthless. And all of your actions in everything, in, in your worldview, so your actions in your worldview are shaped by the lie that you believed. You've been distorted. You've been corrupted because the, the blunt force trauma of that lie rocked you. It rocked you. Some of you believe the lie that no one understands what you're going through. You're the only one in the whole world who's going through this particular thing. That's a lie. That's a lie. And it's a lie to make you isolated. It's a lie to make you feel like you're alone. God didn't create us to be solo creatures. God didn't create us to be alone. God created us to be communal. God in his perfection is communing with God at all times, Father, Son, and Spirit, in eternal communion. And we are made in God's image, and God made Adam. And he said what? It's not good for Adam to be solo. And he made Eve. And then what was God's first command? In the whole Bible, what's the very first command? In the Bible, what's the first command? Be fruitful and multiply. But the enemy's lies want you isolated. The enemy's lies don't want you to be in eternal communion or in any kind of communion with anybody, especially not in the fellowship of believers who believe truth. He wants you isolated. These are rocks, y'all. You ever believe that the sin that you committed can never be confessed, can never be divulged because it's so heinous? What will happen to me if people know that I was involved in that kind of sin? Or maybe you committed a sin that you think you can't even be forgiven of. Maybe you're in the middle of a sin that you feel like you can't overcome. And I don't mean a sin like an action, but a sinful pattern that continues to rear its head and you feel like it has you stuck. Is that you? These are rocks being hurled at your head, y'all. Sometimes it's people slandering our name with 
horrible untruths and lies. You feel like life is just dealing you blow after blow and you feel like you can't get a break. These are debilitating rocks that isolate you, discourage you, and are aimed at killing you. And they're real. And they are powerful. You don't get up from these rocks in your own strength. You can pretend like they ain't hit you. You can cope with the debilitating effect of the rock hitting you. But you don't stand in, you don't stand in restored power in your own strength. Oh no, we don't have that kind of strength. You don't stand in that kind of strength. The heap of rocks is far too much for you to bear. The blunt force trauma of these rocks will render you unconscious or dead, but for us, who believe in the name of Jesus, who love and trust ourselves unto Jesus. We serve a God who resurrects the dead and empowers his people to stand firm against such attacks. God tells us to be girded with the armor of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. It says, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Look at that. It says, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. You ask me, Pastor Canaan, how can I be strengthened by the Lord in his vast strength? Look at verse 11. Paul says, put on the full armor of God. You want to be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength? Put on the full armor of God. You say, why? So that, you see that, right? So that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having prepared everything take your stand look at verse 14 stand therefore here's your instruction stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist righteousness like armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with the readiness of the gospel of peace in every situation take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And might I say, probably extinguish the harsh rocks of the evil one. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Whew. Verse 18, don't, don't miss verse 18, y'all. Don't stop at 17. Verse 18, pray at all times, okay? unceasing prayer pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer request and then here's the last one stay alert don't be caught sleeping stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints god gives us what we need to endure by providing us with his armor you want not to stand? You stand in what the power that God supplies. That's how you stand. The armor of God will reduce the damage done by the stones of lies. Here's some truth 
to combat some of those lies that you may believe. Romans 5, 8 tells us that Jesus gave his life for us because he wanted us while we were still sinners. You know what that means? It means that you are wanted. While you were still a sinner, Christ died to redeem the likes of you. You didn't do anything to make God want you more or less. But he was willing to give his only son. Jesus was willing to die to redeem people like you. He wants you. And he's willing to go to amazing lengths to acquire and secure your soul. To bring healing and restoration to your body, your relationships, your spirit. To bring about the ultimate form of shalom, of peace in your life, in all of life, in the wholeness of your life. God wants you. Some more truth. Jesus understands your hardships. Hebrews 4.15. It says that we serve a priest who's Jesus, who's able to sympathize with our pain and our hardships. Jesus gets it. No, you're not alone in this. You ain't the only one who's going through this. Jesus understands. And not just that, but 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that no, no temptation has seized you that's not common to man. What does that mean? You ain't the only one, B. You are not alone. You're just scared to share. And you will only be healed in the measure by which you share. You got to share your pain. You got to share your, your hurts. Share it in a wise setting with people who you can trust, but you can't keep it boxed in. Your bones will waste away as you try to hide the reality of your life from others. You know what I'm talking about, and you know if this is you. You know if you're putting on the front because you're afraid to divulge all the information. How can you be fully known by your community if you're hiding stuff? And how can you expect me? to fully disclose to you when you won't fully disclose to us. Oh, my friends, the community at Pillar Church, the people who you know, know this. They want to pray for you. They want to bear the burdens with you. We want to fulfill the law of Christ, right? We want to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6. I want to, I want to pray for you. I want to cry for you. I want to fast for you. I want to love you. But you can't hide your sin. You can't suppress the reality of your circumstances. Don't do it anymore. I want to walk through the Bible with you. Not because I can bring healing, but because God, through his spirit and his word, can bring healing. None of your, none of your life circumstances will go to waste with God. He can redeem them all. God can redeem what the locusts have eaten. Here's more truth. In Christ, your suffering is never eternal. So we have something called hope. We have hope. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Though the rocks may bludgeon, 
bludgeon you. Have hope and know that eternal glory awaits your temporary afflictions. What's the source of your ability to endure? Spirit-empowered endurance is God's power in you, not your own. 2 Corinthians 13.4 says this, For he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. He's speaking of Jesus. But then it doesn't stop there. Look what else it says. We also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by God's power. What sparks our need to endure? Spirit-empowered spirit empowered endurance is sparked by suffering. What is the source of our ability to endure? Spirit-empowered endurance is God's power in you, not your own. Thirdly, what is the distinguishing, what is a distinguishing mark of endurance? Spirit-empowered endurance is not deterred by the opposition. Look at Acts 14, verse 19, and we're going to go deeper into 20. It says, some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. After disciples gathered around him, he got up and went into the town. Yo, you got to read your Bible slow. Did you see what, just, what was just said? He got up and went back into the town. They just stoned him. They just stoned you, Paul. Paul, what are you doing? Stop the nonsense. Don't go back into that town. They don't care about your life. They want to kill you in that town, Paul. They think that you're lying. They think that you, they think that you come to, to hoodwink them, Paul. Don't go back. The people who sent you in Acts 13, the church understands that they tried to kill you, Paul. Don't go back into the town. Don't do it. Just stop right there. Paul can't stop. Paul won't stop. I'm convicted. Because I think of myself and I think of the times that the circumstances around me concerning the gospel of Christ have caused me to shut my lips. Why have I not stood firm on the gospel truth of Jesus, life, death, burial, and resurrection, and been bold enough to proclaim that in front of anybody, no matter the rocks that were hurled against me? And if the world rocks hurled against me, would I return or would I flee? Would I go back into the city? Paul went back into the city. Paul can't stop. Paul won't stop because he has gospel lenses on and he knows that Jesus didn't stop. Jesus couldn't stop. And it's inspiring. It's motivating. Paul knows what's at stake. People's lives is at stake. Eternity is at stake. Paul can't stop. Paul won't stop. He knows Jesus didn't stop. When Jesus was being chastised, he didn't stop. When Jesus was arrested, he didn't stop. When Jesus was beaten, he didn't stop. When Jesus was lied on, he didn't stop. When Jesus was crucified, he didn't stop. And when death put its weight on Jesus' chest, he didn't stop. But he bench-pressed death. And he sent his Holy Spirit to empower his saints to be agents of change and, and ministers of peace in a broken world. We can't stop, y'all. We won't stop, y'all. We're going to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus because we believe wholeheartedly that that is what people need, wholeness in Christ. They need their hearts 
of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. They need their minds renewed with the truth of the gospel. And we are ministers thereunto. Preach the gospel and all of its implications. Jesus didn't just save us from sin. Jesus didn't just save us from hell. Jesus destroyed dividing walls that hinder people. Jesus renewed worldviews that causes me to see other individuals as image bearers of God. They have inherent value to me now because my mind was renewed. Back before, I was an animal. People were just means to an end. But now you are a father and a mother and a sister and a daughter and a brother and a niece and a nephew. And you have value. And I cannot hurt you because I love you and I love God. And you are made in his image. And now I want what's best for you. Even if it's hard truth, I'm going to tell you because I love you. Because the renewing of our mind is necessary if we're to experience Peace and wholeness, y'all. The gospel is what is needed. We can't stop and we won't stop. We will stand firm. But not by our own strength. Not by our own power. Zechariah 4, 6. Not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Paul's not fearing any man. He's not fearing any rock because he's trusting his life to a rock that's harder than Gibraltar. Second Timothy 1.12. Look what Paul says, and I, I want to say it with him. Oh, I want to say this with him. He says, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Now, that can either mean that his life was entrusted to him or that the gospel was entrusted to him. And I say, Paul's probably talking about both. God is able to keep what was entrusted to us, our life and, his, and the fidelity of his message. Rise up, O Christian. Rise up and go back into the city. That's what we're... Go back into the city, confront that sin, confess that shortcoming, proclaim that truth, believe those promises, stand firm in that armor. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, one of love and one of sound mind. I don't care if that sounds weak. That's what transforms hearts and souls. It ain't weak. It's power. The gospel is powerful. May the cross of Christ, may the resurrection of the dead, may the empowering of the Holy Spirit inspire within us and within you gospel grit. We need some gospel grit that says I can't stop and I won't stop because worldviews must be changed. Justice must be upheld. Eternal souls must be secured. We have to be compelled by the love of God to stand firm and to move forward because of the atoning work of Jesus. We will fight for what is right. Acts 14, 21, after they had preached the gospel in that town and, many, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and again to Antioch. Paul moved in, got stoned, went back, preached the gospel, went into these other towns, and he continued with the mission. Make disciples. Why, Paul? It's not about the church. It's not about the name of Paul. 
Guys, it's not about Pillar Church. It's not about Pastor Kanan, Pastor Eric, Pastor Derek. It's not about us. It's about the glorious name of Jesus and what his name can do. His name is a strong tower. If we run into it, we are safe, not ours. We're praying that we are a people who are in his name, who are safe when those waves come in a tower that's able to keep us from, from being swept away and drowning in the seas of despair. No. It's the name of Jesus that we need. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. The gospel is the means of transforming the heart. The gospel is hope inspiring good news. The gospel is God's means of making justice roll like waters. That's what we need. We need to proclaim the gospel. We need biblically formed and transformed souls. And we need community engagement from those individuals. Our presence needs to be felt. Gospel men and women need to run these streets proclaiming the gospel, raising up and mentoring young people. Come on, y'all. Come on, Pillar Church. Let's get it. Let's pray that God would give us some, some, some gospel grit. We must endure. The key of the Spirit's empowering endurance is indeed the gospel. Remember, Spirit-empowered endurance is sparked by suffering. Spirit-empowered endurance is God's power in you, not your own. Spirit-empowered endurance is not deterred by opposition, and spirit-empowered endurance is driven by the gospel. Acts 14, verse 21 through 22. After they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. Verse 22. Strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith, and by telling them it is necessary to go through many, many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Notice that what was said here, Paul went to encourage them. He went to strengthen them and he strengthened them to continue in the faith. Pillar Church, I'm trying to encourage you and strengthen you to continue in the faith. Do all that you do, but do it unto the Lord. Do it unto the Lord. You can't separate Jesus and the rest of your life. No, Jesus has encapsulated your life. He has transformed your life. Now everything you do, you do unto his glory because you live not for yourself. You live unto him for his name's sake. Paul is going to encourage them and to strengthen them to continue in the faith. Why? Because it is necessary that through many hardships they will enter the kingdom of God. It's going to be hard out here. It's going to be hard out here. I don't know the waves, the cultural winds that are about to blow in this country and in, and in our city. I can't predict them. All I know is this, Jesus' name is a pillar. And pillars are the last thing standing after the winds and the waves blow down all the straw houses that were built. The last thing that is remaining is a pillar and Jesus is that. We will stand firm next to him. He will survive the cultural waves. My friends, 2,000 years of cultural winds hasn't blown him away. He ain't going nowhere tomorrow. He ain't going nowhere next year. He ain't going nowhere in the next decade. And save his return, he ain't going nowhere this next century. We will stand firm unto our God, for he is a pillar. And we will run this race with endurance. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. It says, let us run with endurance, the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured 
the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me just walk through that real quick with you. Let us run with endurance the race, keeping our eyes on Jesus. That's our task, to keep our eyes on Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is the source, right? He's the initiator of our faith. And he's the perfecter of our faith. He is the enduring agent. He is the one that initiates and perfects our faith. We need him. Without him, we fall away. For the joy laid before him, I mean, yeah, for the, for the joy that lay before him, this is talking about um, his plan of redemption, right? How he will, in, uh, what he is looking at, He's about to endure a hardship, and he's looking at something that's giving him the strength to endure that hardship. Y'all know what that's like. You go on a diet plan, and you're looking at the end game. I want to fit into that dress. And you trying to fit into that dress is going to sustain you enough so that you know you can't eat them fries. Right? You got a goal in mind, and that goal is sustaining you for the joy that lay before him. What did he do? He endured the cross, which was God's wrath and pain. He despised the shame. Remember, he was crucified naked at eye level. When all was said and done, he passes, he raises, he ascends into heaven, and it says that he sat down. What does sitting down symbolize? When you're done cleaning your house, when you're done cleaning your house, you pour yourself a little bottle of wine, right? I mean, you pour yourself a glass of wine, not the whole bottle. And what do you do? Sit down. Why? Tetelestai. It's finished. Mission accomplished. I can enjoy the fruit of my labor. And he gets to welcome all those who believe by faith in the name of Jesus into his rest. Come on, y'all. Mission accomplished, barriers broken, God's wrath propitiated, atonement accomplished. All who believe, come on, come on. I get to enjoy my people forever, God says. Be strengthened in this, pillar church. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not, for, not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Jesus is our pillar. Another thing, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6.2. That's telling us suffering community. 2 Corinthians 1.4. God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It means that your suffering is not wasted on it. Your suffering is not wasted, but God redeems and uses that, that you may be a source of comfort for others who are enduring similar things. Guys, we can't stop because there's a generation out there that needs gospel men and women to trailblaze a path of peace for them. And the machete that cuts the brush is the gospel. To end, Acts 14, verse 24. 
and following, the 26, it says, they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And after they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalaya, verse 26. From there, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God in the work that they had now, key word, completed. The work that they had now what? Completed. Victory is not for those who start. It's for those who finish. Quote by Jim Boyce. We need some gospel grit. We need spirit-empowered endurance. Verse 27 and 28, after they arrived, they gathered the church together. They reported everything that God had done with them, and surely they had tales to tell. And he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Beautiful. That's a whole other sermon. But the faith is open to the Gentiles. I'm going to leave you with these four things. We suffer, yet we will endure, for God will hold us up. We shall not be moved nor shaken, for the gospel is a solid rock. We will play our position as proclaimers of all that the blood has done for us. And we will worship Jesus for our hope starts and ends with him. Father God, thank you for the glorious, precious blood of Christ. May it transform our hearts and our souls. May it do the work it was intended to do. Would it redeem a sinner like me and sinners like us? Will we walk no longer in fear through the valley of the shadow of death, but will we fear no evil for your staff and your rod comfort us? The cross of Christ brings us the, rea the reality of our redemption, or the transformation of our souls and the proclamation of a gospel that has the fidelity to change hearts. Oh God, Capture us, capture us, capture us. We're yours. I pray that somebody is attracted to you through this message. Somebody's eyes can see, not because of me, but because of you, because of your word. Somebody's soul was invigorated and given life. I love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Use Pillar Church. Use Pillar Church in Jesus' name.